Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She called, oh no, the motorcade sped on. United Press says that the wounds for President Kennedy perhaps could be fatal. At 1.38 on November 22nd, 1963, Walter Cronkite announced to a stunned nation that the 35th President of the United States was dead. Slain by an assassin's bullet, John Fitzgerald Kennedy's tragic death would go on to inspire some of the most enlightened legislation of the era. And in his absence, plunged the nation into one of the most traumatic conflicts in its history. But what if the events that sunny day in late November had gone a little differently? What if the car had been driving a little faster, or the order to remove the bubble glass cover rescinded? What if, on that fateful day in Dallas, the assassin's bullet had missed JFK? What if Nazi Germany won the Battle of Britain? What if Babe Ruth wasn't traded to the Yankees? What if the 300 were routed at Thermopylae? What if China had discovered the new world? The world that wasn't. An alternate history podcast. Welcome to a brand new installment of The World That Wasn't. Now, we realise it's been a while since our last episode. But there's good news, isn't there, Nick? There is good news, Jamie. We're back. We've How had has it been? A couple of weeks? A couple, couple of weeks. Maybe a couple of years. Yeah, you know. things change. Yeah, it's that whole we fell asleep and then we woke up and it was three years in the future. There is an alternate history, however, Jamie, where we, we continued this show and now we're on episode 70. But- <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> that would be a good one. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we are going to be releasing new episodes in a regular format each month, so no more long gaps. But before we start, Jamie and I wanted to say a big thank you for all of the feedback we've received. We've got a lot of love from folks writing in saying how much they've enjoyed the show and suggesting a whole host of new counterfactual history topics for us to explore. So hopefully you'll enjoy the upcoming episodes we have in store for you. And continue to send us your counterfactual history suggestions and we'll do our best to fit them in. I love getting new ideas from people. Now, this week we'll be tackling one of the most controversial alternate history topics, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and what history would have been like if JFK had survived. Let's get into it. Let's do this. Okay, before we get started, let's put our cards on the table. The assassination of Kennedy is an extremely volatile subject, not just in the alternate history world, 
but in the history world at large uh, as well. We need to make something clear here. While we understand that there are many theories about who and how the 35th president was killed, and Nick and I have our own debatable theories about that. Yes, we do. But this episode of The World That Wasn't looks to bypass those conspiracy theories and instead tackle the counterfactual question of how would history have progressed had Kennedy actually survived the assassination attempt? And while in our last podcast, we considered different alternate realities had Hitler stayed the course, for this episode, we discuss one alt-reality and then three different outcomes. Right. Now, before we get into it, we should note that it was the second assassination attempt, actually, which is a a good segue into discussing the the historical landscape at the time. I mean, let's, let's take a step back for a moment. John F. Kennedy while being a popular president, had as many naysayers and enemies as he did allies and boosters. And in the 1960 election, Kennedy barely beat Richard Nixon for the presidency, which many called foul by way of vote tampering, controlled by his, you know, his powerful father, Joseph Kennedy. Now, despite this controversy, the new president and his beautiful wife struck a chord with the nation. The cultural and geopolitical landscape of the early 60s Uh, was changing. And despite the sort of powder keg-like volatility of the Cold War, many people, I think, uh, were looking for a new way of thinking. Remember, this is the time when black soldiers who, upon returning from World War II in Korea, you know, they were still told to sit in the back of the bus, right? right? right. Or, Or eat in the Negro section, despite putting their lives on the line in the name of American freedom. This is a time when the daughters of Rosie the Riveter questioned that so-called ideal of barefoot and pregnant and their finally appliance, you know, GE kitchens. Not to mention an economy that was just starting to kind of recover from a pretty bad recession under the Eisenhower administration. Now, we've all heard the famous ask not what your country can do for you speech. And for most people, JFK's short but impactful presidency is often boiled down to a few brief cliff notes. His inaugural speech, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination. Maybe Marilyn Monroe, but you get the idea. Right, right, right. right. But a lot happened in those first couple of years of, of Kennedy's presidency, and they were problematic to say the least. The thing is, is that a lot of these issues that we're about to talk about, Jamie, get eclipsed by the assassination, by Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, I mean, we could do a whole show just on the conspiracy theories alone, but that really eclipses what is already an amazing story. Absolutely. In reality. Absolutely. No conspiracy theory is necessary. Absolutely. And, and you think about this. In the first few months, he's in office, right? He okays the absolute military debacle of the Bay of Pigs. You know, most people don't know this, but the planet actually originated with Eisenhower and, right. and you know, yep. his folks. But it was a catastrophic beginning for his Cold War foreign policy. You know, and it only got worse from there. I mean, when Kennedy walked into his first meeting with the then Russian premier Nikita Khrushchev in Vienna in June 1961, you know, it was a hands-down embarrassment. Absolutely. You got Khrushchev taking advantage of, of the young president's inexperience and essentially telling him he would erect the Berlin Wall. You know, Kennedy later said about the meeting... He just beat the hell out of me. Right. You know, I've got a terrible problem if he thinks I'm inexperienced and have no guts. Until we remove those ideas, we won't get anywhere, you know, with him. Now, if that wasn't enough, there was also the very, I guess you call it malignant situation in North and South Vietnam. And back home, 
a civil rights movement that was beginning to gain momentum, you know, despite what could be considered government-sanctioned, you know, oppression, violent oppression of African-Americans, including segregation and Jim Crow laws, uh, voter, uh, voter oppression and downright, you know, brutality. Things that are still getting talked about today, yeah. ironically. But like any good fighter who takes a few good licks in the first round, you know, the Kennedy presidency got a second wind, and this is part of that arc. In his second year, things started to change. In fact, it would not be an overstatement to say that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was transformational for the young president. And while I'm sure most of our listeners are well-versed in this event, for those of you who slept through that week of kind of history class, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred over two weeks, October 14th through the 28th, with a confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union over revealed secret plans to deliver Soviet nuclear missiles to Cuba. This extraordinarily dangerous two weeks were the closest the two superpowers came to all-out nuclear war. It's, it's funny because, I, you know, as we were researching this, I'm kind of, you know, going through every JFK film and book and, right. you know, read the Stephen King one, read, you know, a bunch of other books ended up watching uh, 13 Days with Kevin Costner. Mm, yeah. And, the you know, whatever you think of that movie, I, I think there's, there's something really palpable in that film about what it felt like to be somebody who lived in, in the sort of uncertainty of those 13 days because the temperature of the country got turned up to 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and at certain points in, in those 13 days... There are literally mornings where you're like, okay, this may be my last day on earth, you know, and times when you come back from work and think, okay, we may not wake up tomorrow. I mean, think about that, you know, having children and thinking there's nothing I can do to protect them. I could get in a car and I could drive for 2000 miles and I wouldn't be able to protect them. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty crazy, crazy time to live in. Yeah. Unreal. I mean, we're talking one bad decision away from Armageddon. There were a lot of bad decisions. No doubt. But the potentially worst of these bad decisions was never made. Thank thank, God. Yeah, thank God. And uh, we can thank Kennedy for that. Right. Now, remember, in his war cabinet, it was kind of made up of a lot of Cold War hawks, right? I mean, you had names like General Curtis LeMay and General Maxwell Taylor, and these were not men who backed away from a fight. Never, huh? Uh, they were still pissed about the, the Bay of Pigs disaster specifically. Um, and then JFK's sort of uh, hesitancy to use air power. Um, they considered this new situation to be a chance to send a message to the Soviets and the rest of the world that the U.S. was ready and able to use force. That fact withstanding, the president considered six options. Do nothing. American vulnerability to the Soviet missiles was nothing new. We've always been, it was part of what the Cold War was all about. Uh, Diplomacy. Mutually mutually assured destruction. Exactly. You know, diplomacy. um, Use diplomatic pressure to get the Soviet Union to remove the missiles. The secret approach, offer Castro a choice, you know, maybe come on our side uh, and split with the Russians. Invasion, a full force invasion of Cuba, overthrow Castro. Airstrike, use the U.S. Air Force to attack all known missile sites, or a blockade, the use of U.S. Navy to block any missiles from arriving in Cuba. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted to hit Cuba and they wanted to hit them hard, but they miscalculated a very important fact. The Cubans already had nuclear weapons. In fact, some say they had around 100 tactical nuclear weapons that could take out any invading force and possibly even Miami. Which reportedly... 
Castro would have used. And in addition, it was learned in 2002 that a Soviet B-59 nuclear-armed submarine was ready and actually came dangerously close to launching a 15-kiloton torpedo, undoubtedly igniting all-out nuclear war. But, as we said, Kennedy did not make the decision to invade. Instead, he decided to forego the Joint Chiefs' recommendations and went around them via his brother, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. Now, Bobby Kennedy began discussions directly with Khrushchev um, by way of the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Anatoly Dobrin. That correspondence between the two superpowers was one that was much less confrontational than, you know, the the third person uh, conversations they were having. And instead, you know, they, they developed a certain sense of empathy. Neither one in history to view them as the man who initiated the apocalypse, right? And on October 27th, a compromise was agreed upon that the Soviets would remove all missiles from Cuba and the United States would do the same um, from Turkey and southern Italy. Now, those those nuclear warheads, obviously, in, in Turkey were obsolete by, by uh, you know, most reports, but it's symbolic, There's right? You know, there, I, think, yeah. I think that both men, they kind of bonded over the experiences they both shared. Uh, they were both dealing with pressure at home, warhawks in their own cabinets, and they both had to save face so that ultimately they didn't end up looking bad to their respective governments. And to that end, you know, Kennedy also promised to never invade the United States would never invade Cuba. Right, so. which also pissed off LeMay and, right, uh, and those right. guys. Now, we've left out a lot of details here because this really isn't um, a podcast about the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, although that would actually make a really a good, a good episode. So very much so. note to self. It would have um, had a quick ending, though. That's very true. But we, we do bring it up because it's an important moment in Kennedy's young presidency. For one, he stood up to his joint chiefs, who had all but told him, you know, their lack of respect and confidence in his approach to foreign policy. Right. And in some strange way, he made a connection with uh, that, that same Soviet leader who had basically mopped the floor with him less than a year earlier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and after this brush with disaster, you know, Kennedy himself was forced to come to terms with the fact that powers on both sides of the Cold War had created a situation that was way too precarious, and it demanded a new way of thinking about, you know, how these two nations could exist without blowing themselves up and everybody with them. Right, right. Yeah, very, very important uh, uh, moment there of uh, discovery. Right. You know, and on a personal side, avoiding the catastrophe was weirdly, you know, this was Kennedy's first win. Right. You know, it's 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 an intense way to get your first win, but it had changed him. And in the following years, he did lead with a certain sense of confidence. He had a little bit more swagger and, you know, maybe he could handle the big issues after all. The Russians, Cuba, Eastern Europe, the growing concerns of Vietnam and at home, you know, the civil rights issue. And then there was his speech at American University in Washington, D.C. Right. So so now this, right, you know, the American University speech that was really where we see Kennedy publicly countering the attitudes of American Cold War hawks. This us and them mentality wasn't the only way to see the world. I think that's what he was he was able to sort of uh, verbalize. And in fact, Kennedy was determined to create a better relationship with the enemy, going so far as to say, I speak of peace, therefore, as the, sorry, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. You know, I, I know that um, there would just be a horror, horrible bastardization of, of a great speech. So I think what we'll do is let's just play the speech, Jamie. What do you say? That sounds good. 
in this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived, and that is the most important topic on earth, peace. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. No government or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, in acts of courage. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. So there we have it from the mouth of Kennedy himself. Not exactly evil empire talk, right? Right. And Khrushchev literally said, this is the greatest speech by an American since Roosevelt. And I assume he means uh, FDR. I don't know if he knew Teddy very well. But um, what this famous speech epitomized were new policies JFK was pursuing. And not only with the Soviet Union and Cuba, right? But even in Vietnam, where he was starting to doubt the value of actually getting involved further because it was already starting to look like a quagmire. And though the actuality of this is highly debated, um, people see both sides of it, but some believe he was ready to pull out altogether um, if he, in fact, was reelected. Wow. Okay. So a lot of stuff. And this might seem like a long way to get to our divergence point, but the overall point that still needs to be understood is that a lot changed from 1961 to 1963. And one has to wonder what else might have happened had he survived that fateful day in Dallas. And so on that note, we would love to uh, bring in our special guest let's, of the let's show. Let's reveal our special I'll guest. Reveal our, our special expert. guest. Yes. And as you know, the format of the show is that Jamie and I ramble on for a little while, setting the scene dramatically yeah. uh, for our divergence point. And then we bring on an intelligent person <laughs> yes. to, to, right. uh, to help us to make sense of, of our ramblings. Right. And our guest today is a five-time Emmy Award-winning journalist, a renowned political reporter having been the full reporter for several national conventions and was cited by the Washington Journalism Review as the best in the business. He was a speechwriter for Robert Kennedy. And most importantly, in regards to the world that wasn't, this man wrote the amazing alternate history book, If Kennedy Lived, The First and Second Terms of President John F. Kennedy in Alternate History. And also... Then Everything Changed, Stunning Alternate Histories of American Politics, JFK, RFK, Carter, Ford, and Reagan. Uh, the World That Wasn't podcast welcomes Jeff Greenfield. Thanks for having me. Great, Jeff. Um, first question, what drew you to write an alternate history about uh, Kennedy and his assassination? Well, the first alternate history that I wrote, which is a trio, uh, concerned one of the most ignored facts of what might have been, that in 1960, uh, as president-elect, he was almost killed by a suicide bomber down in Palm Beach, Florida. And then as we got closer to the um, 50th anniversary of his assassination, um, it occurred to me that 
there too, although in a bad way, just luck had played a, an enormous role that had it not stopped raining in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963, the bubble top would have stayed on top of his limo as it rode through Dallas. And while it was not bulletproof, um, you can imagine very easily how a first shot that cracked a bubble top would have instantly alerted the Secret Service to what was going on, rather than them pausing for a few fateful seconds. And so then I began to think, okay, um, if John Kennedy had survived that, and it was a matter of fate, then how does history change? Because one of the things that drives my curiosity about all of these scenarios is when you change a little bit of fact, it's like throwing a pebble into a, a, a pond. All the ripples uh, continue outward. That one change leads to any number uh, of possible alternatives. And that's what I started to look at with respect to John Kennedy. I think that's one of the things that makes you perfect for our podcast, really, Jeff, because it's exactly kind of the the reason we started it in the first place. There's all of these very sort of tempting moments in history where everything turns potentially on a, a split decision. The You know, the decision to put the bubble top up may have changed mm-hmm. events, as you've outlined in your book. And I think one of the interesting things about your book is that you kind of suggest that there could have even been other moments that would have decided a slightly different fate. Uh, so, for example, the route might have changed if the location that they were going, uh, the luncheon, I believe it was, uh, was maybe held somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the route would have taken them away from Dealey Plaza and obviously away from the school book uh, depository where Lee Harvey Oswald had gotten the job. So it's, it's very interesting. In fact, years before this book, I helped uh, an advanced man for John Kennedy write his memoirs. Advanced men are the people who go out and, uh, you know, and plan things like the route and where an event is going to be held. And there was a big fight in Dallas between the, the, John, the governor, a very conservative establishment guy, who wanted the lunch held in a kind of ritzy, upscale location, and the more liberal types who wanted a, the lunch and held at a center where they could have accommodated many more people uh, of different uh, incomes. And indeed, as you say, had uh, the president and his team insisted that the luncheon be held at, at this women's center, it would have taken the, the uh, motorcade route way away from uh, the school book depository. And, and you're right. That's just another one of those um, uh, twists of fate. It's, by the way, one of the reasons why I never believed in the conspiracy theory, because the route wasn't actually nailed down uh, until a f- you know, relatively close to November 22nd. And there's no way that the, that Oswald would have been placed in the school book depository with knowledge of forethought about where that route was going because nobody knew. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I think that's one of the one of the sort of questions I think that can sometimes skew the conversation about JFK. Um, you know, because everybody then suddenly starts talking about the conspiracy theory, which, you know, Jamie and I are, are prone to do it time to time, you know, with a late night beer. Um, but I think it's one of those um, it's one of those things that can very quickly take the conversation away from from some of the more interesting facts about JFK, because obviously this was a very tumultuous time. And there are so many factors that are really, really interesting at this point in history 
that you delve into in the book. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Jamie and I were so happy to have you, uh, you know, come on because, you know, from Vietnam, civil rights, all of these really sort of pivotal moments, um, you know, we get to have that conversation through your book. So I think it's, uh, I think it's really fascinating. Well, fire away. So we have a confession to make. You know, we, we really liked your divergence point and we felt like it was plausible and compelling. So we, of course, we borrowed it for our, uh, for our first divergence point that we're going to take you on, on this wander through uh, alternate history. Um, you know, we've talked about the, there's obviously a lot of uh, speculation, uh, even recently with some books about the bubble top and whether it, whether it could have saved JFK if it had been on. I mean, obviously, as you'd mentioned before, it wasn't bulletproof, but it may have at least obscured uh, Oswald's view or, or deflected the fatal bullet. And less obviously in your book, as you, you'd mentioned, mm-hmm. the shattering, I think, of the glass would have at least alerted yeah. the driver that something was awry. So he may have you know, he may have started to swerve out of traffic and and, uh, out of danger a little earlier. Um, Yeah, because in real life, the the limo actually slowed down. Yes. They didn't know what it was. They thought it might have a firecracker. So instead of speeding up, they crawled to a virtual stop. Yeah. Uh, I think that would have conceivably plausibly led to a very different outcome. Literally on the day Kennedy was shot, he had secretly talked to French journalist Jean Daniel, who was meeting with Castro, and he wanted Mr. Daniel to float the idea of rapprochement with the island nation. Right. People were beginning to sense this sort of slight thaw in the Cold War. And in 63, both superpowers had come to terms on this sort of nuclear test ban treaty. So tensions in Berlin were at least at a low simmer after Khrushchev's PR disaster that was the, the Berlin Wall. <laughs> Uh, the two leaders were talking again, realizing that they, they had a choice, live together or die together. And I think Kennedy even went as, as far as to suggest that, you know, as a gesture of, of cooperation and goodwill, that the U.S. and the Soviets actually join forces in a mission to the moon. You know, things were changing, right? Yeah, absolutely. But let's not forget the growing specter in Southeast Asia. Vietnam was getting incredibly sketchy. Right. JFK and his administration had actually taken things to the next level with the coup and assassination of South Vietnamese President No Dinh Diem. Yeah, but Robert Kennedy was quoted after JFK's death saying his brother always thought we should win the war in Vietnam. But there's plenty of information out there that pointed to JFK looking to find an exit strategy. In fact, on October 5th, 1963, he made the formal but unannounced decision to withdraw a thousand US advisors things seem to be moving towards ending the conflict, so. But, as Castro said when he heard about Kennedy's assassination, this is bad, this is very bad. Things had changed. But, had he survived, would the Cold War have taken a different path? Would we be living in a world of capitalist and communist coexistence today? Or would things have taken a much different course? Well, let's find out, Jamie. It's time for our first alternate theory. Today, President Kennedy addressed the United Nations Assembly in a speech titled A New Era of Coexistence that many are calling the most important step towards detente since the two countries were World War II allies. Introduced at the UN, this radical initiative would cut nuclear arsenals in half, including removal of all short-range missiles, recognition of the communist government of Cuba, and a re-establishment of diplomatic ties between the U.S. and the island nation. A negotiated peace in North and South Vietnam with UN protection and even a joint U.S.-Soviet mission to the moon. 
In return, the U.S. will ask the Soviets to bring down the Berlin Wall and offer more autonomy and elections for Eastern Bloc nations. While the president has received support from many of his fellow Democrats, some Republicans have called the plan, quote, a reckless sellout to the Russians. Meanwhile, Premier Khrushchev has given no guarantees that they would approve the plan, but also said, quote, it was a noble gesture that deserves review at the next party assembly. So JFK survives, and now we're in a warmer Cold War. I think one of the many contradictions for us is that JFK, he kind of ran on being tough on communism. And I think that was one of the reasons he appealed to some of his more conservative voters in 1960. But the reality was that he was much more about appeasement and finding more amicable bilateral solutions. Why do you think that was, Jeff? Well, first of all, I think it was a change. We should remember that one of the things that the Kennedys, both John and Robert, signed off on, and in Robert's case, even encouraged, was an all-out effort to topple the Castro government, uh, up to and including potentially assassinating him, but subverting the economy and and various other things. Uh, Even though the the invasion of the Bay of Pigs that was a complete disaster may may have given the Kennedy a little pause, right up to Dallas, They were looking – and after the Cuban Missile Crisis, they were still looking for ways to undermine the Cuban government. Uh, Kennedy had just begun to think maybe there was a way to get to rapprochement uh, when he left for Dallas. But I I do think that it was the missile crisis and the specter of um, nuclear war that caused John Kennedy to think very seriously about changing course. And you see this you see this before Dallas, obviously. He gave a, sp- a very famous speech in June of 1963, calling in effect for an end to the Cold War. Uh, they negotiated the uh, uh, limited nuclear test ban treaty. Um, and while there was still a lot of tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, I think his general notion was that this just had to stop. Uh, that th- there was too great a danger of a miscalculation that could have plunged the world into nuclear annihilation. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the many alternate history areas that people are fond of looking at is how close we came during the Cuban Missile Crisis to absolute disaster. Uh, and so I think all of that had a big role uh, in changing Kennedy's mind. Now, if we extend this, one of the things we know is that from the from the moment he heard about this, the shooting, Robert Kennedy was worried about whether or not all the efforts to topple Castro had triggered an attempt to assassinate his brother. Uh, And so it's entirely possible that had Kennedy survived, that would have been a a very powerful motive to say, wait a minute, let's, you know, let's not go down this road anymore. If they would have taken a more aggressive stance had he survived, um, it, the, the same potential dangers would have been there, though, right? The nuclear, uh, potential nuclear war breaking out. You know, there, there was a French journalist who Kennedy saw uh, who was going to see Castro. And Kennedy said, get back. Let me know what he's saying. Let me know what, you know, whether or not there's any maneuvering room here. And that journalist was with Castro when he found out Kennedy had been shot. And the first reports were that Kennedy had survived, and Castro said, 
That's great. He's reelected. Terrific. Which indicates that Castro was thinking that in a second term, there might be room for some uh, warming of relations or at least an end to the kind of, uh, you know, barely disguised open hostility. Would he have fallen in the same trappings that Johnson fell into of of kind of a constant uh, escalation? Um, No, no. uh, We've talked about that a little earlier, but I have. This is the most critical area of of the what if. And here's what we know. Uh, Kennedy had gone out west in 1963 to hit some western states, especially ostensibly to talk about conservation and national parks. But really, because he wasn't going to get a chance to get there, he thought, in 64. And quite and nobody cared. The, the speeches were going over like lead balloons. And at one point, he made a passing reference to the nuclear test ban treaty and the place erupted. Mm-hmm. And he found he started doing that in all of his speeches in these very conservative Western states and came back and said, in effect, I found my theme for 1964 peace. Uh, and that combined with uh, the skepticism about the military. Yeah. His longstanding belief that nationalism was too powerful to resist in Asia. He'd gone to, to uh, Vietnam as a congressman when the French still ran Vietnam and, and came back thinking they're going to lose. There's no way they can hold on to this. And then he told uh, a number of people um, about Vietnam. He said, they're going to throw our asses out of there. Yeah. You know, they don't want us. Um, and and uh, forgive me for this, but there is a. There is a book and documentary called Virtual Kennedy that concerns a three-day conference among historians and policymakers uh, about a decade ago. The sole subject of this conference was what would Kennedy have done about Vietnam if he'd lived? Right. And, the, and this is where I drew a lot of my conclusions for the book. And the, the, the big consensus was he would have tried to figure out a way to de-escalate and get out, but get out very cautiously, knowing the political risks. They would not have been like de Gaulle going on TV and saying to the French, and we Algeria is gone. It would have been a kind of, you know, like a like a gun in an old Western, a guy backing out of a saloon with his guns drawn. Uh, but I think he would. I, I just don't see how he would have escalated. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because you mentioned, I think, in, even in the book that it was a, that he'd spoken to de Gaulle on one of his trips, and that you know de Gaulle had cautioned him about going into Vietnam. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the the word quagmire, I think, is is kind of how you, you phrase it in the book. But I think his sort of reticence to get deeper, I agree, would have probably led him to, to pull out. Uh, and also his mistrust of the military, I, I think, as we'd mentioned earlier, was another reason why he would have, I think, been a little a little less um, agreeable than, than LBJ. Well, remember that when the when the Soviets put up the Berlin Wall, the commander of the troops in Germany wanted to take some tanks and knock the wall down. Yes. And Kennedy said no. Hmm. He actually saw the wall as a potential benefit, very calculatingly, in that it would take the pressure off Khrushchev to to um, push East Germany into, a, into signing a separate peace treaty, which would have been a a major confrontation. Right. So the whole thing you have to understand about Kennedy is caution, prudence. Yeah. You know, it's why I think he wouldn't have launched a massive anti-poverty campaign. He didn't have that view of how politics worked. Yeah. And I think uh, w- w- when we get into the civil rights uh, moment in a second, I think there's some points we, we have about that. But is a joint moon mission possible? 
<laughs> we're all holding hands, we're singing Kumbaya. Well, now, okay, I leave that to you guys. When I heard that introduction, I mean, that you are taking this to a place that I didn't. You know, if you want to imagine, I certainly didn't uh, use it, but if you can imagine a big thaw in the Cold War happening earlier, yeah, I mean, eventually, I think American and Soviet astronauts were on a space station at some point. So you have my blessing on that one. It, it is, <laughs> you're not going to tread on that 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 particular landmine. Yeah. It, I don't regard that as beyond the, as as like ludicrous. You know, nothing like that. No. Right. So I just didn't choose to go in that direction. So obviously, the divergence point of foreign policy upon Kennedy's survival could lead to many paths and outcomes. But an equally dynamic and volatile issue during this period of American history was the very real problem of civil rights. Remember, this was the time of Rosa Parks, the March on Washington, the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King. And though attitudes about race in America varied, one thing was certain. Things were not going to remain the same. Some scholars say that the civil rights issue really started after World War II when black soldiers returned from the fields of battle, putting their lives on the line for their country, only to find the same country treating them like second-class citizens. And the pot was really boiling over... uh, by the, the late 50s. I mean, African-Americans were being outright turned down at voting booths uh, and Jim Crow was alive and well in the South. But, you know, the movement was gaining momentum. Events like Rosa Parks and the Montgomery uh, bus boycott in the late 50s, the Freedom Rides and uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech at the March on Washington in 1963 were all beginning to have results, not just on lawmakers but the public as a whole. And the civil rights issue was, I think it was a tricky subject for JFK politically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the problem here had everything to do with his re-election, right? Uh, Remember, JFK just barely snuck by Nixon in 1960. uh, And a critical piece to winning in 64 would be winning the South. But if he pushed too hard on the issue, he'd most likely lose the support of the Southern Dixiecrats, right? right? right. This despite having congressional dealmaker, you know, master Lyndon Johnson as his running mate. Who was in question to be his running mate the next time around, right? But in fact, you know, JFK lobbied MLK uh, to actually postpone his march on Washington. And while he spoke publicly condemning injustices in the South, politically, you know, he was deliberately wishy-washy. If he was to accomplish his foreign policy goals uh, and make it to the White House for four more years, the civil rights bill would have to wait. Yeah. Now, he surely would have garnered some amazing groundswell support having survived the assassination attempt. But had he pushed through a civil rights bill in that first term, I think it would have greatly diminished any Southern uh, state support that he would have had. And, And that aside, there was just not a lot of support in Congress to begin with. You know, as Jeff stated in his book, in many ways, Johnson was able to pass the civil rights bill as a memorial to JFK. His death, in fact, gave Johnson the political leverage he needed. So what would have happened to the civil rights movement if Kennedy had survived? Let's listen to the real. Yeah. Check this out, Jeff. Talking to reporters two days after what is now being called Bloody Sunday due to violent police and mob attacks on civil rights protesters marching from Selma, Alabama, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. criticizes President Kennedy for his failure to pass a meaningful civil rights bill a year into his second term. Meanwhile, the president condemned the attacks on the marchers and is moving towards signing an executive injunction forbidding any prosecution of arrested marchers. Still, insiders have commented that while the president feels a moral obligation to pass a civil rights bill this year, 
His failure to do so has been the result of not being able to form a majority coalition of support. Meanwhile, supporters of the marchers in Washington are calling for National Guard escorts for all future demonstrations to protect the marchers' right to assemble. This is what we know. Uh, I don't mean to take your listeners into the weeds of American politics, but when John Kennedy got elected uh, in large measure because a last-minute intervention to help save Martin Luther King from potential real trouble in the South threw an awful lot of black votes his way in key states. But when Kennedy got to be president, he realized that the Congress of the United States was dominated by Southern Democrats who ran all the key committees. They held all the power. And these were almost to a man segregationists, if not outright white supremacists. And so he had to tread very carefully on civil rights because he was going to risk his whole economic program. And so when things like the Freedom Ride started with people taking buses down south to challenge segregation, he and his brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy, were not happy about that. They saw that as disruptive. In the year before he died, he'd become a much more uh, open advocate of civil rights. He put out a very strong civil rights bill. But I have grave doubts whether John Kennedy could have gotten those bills through the way Lyndon Johnson did. Why is that? Two reasons. One, Johnson was a southerner. He'd spent his life in the Senate. He knew these people intimately, the key senators who held grips. He knew how to appease them and he knew how to challenge them. Second, the very fact of John Kennedy's death gave Lyndon Johnson a very powerful emotional tool. We're going to do this for President Kennedy. Quite obviously, President Kennedy alive well, he's just trying to get this bill through which is why one of the key opponents of civil rights, a very powerful senator named Richard Russell, I think, said to Johnson, Kennedy couldn't have done this, but you will. You can. So do you think do you think that he was right? Do you think there was no possible way for him to get that civil rights uh, bill passed if, in a second term? Oh, what I think could have passed, because it's so much more uh, black and white, you should find the expression an issue. I think he could have gotten a voting rights bill passed. Hmm. Um, because the Kennedy brothers always said to the civil rights folks, this is your real fight. Once you get the right to vote, you know, there aren't going to be uh, racist elected sheriffs and mayors and governors in these states. Right. Uh, and I think ultimately that turned out to be substantially true. But the first bill that, that Lyndon Johnson got passed was about public accommodation, segregation in restaurants and hotels. I don't think Kennedy could have gotten that passed. And what I imagine in my book is that he gets the support of conservative Southern whites, senators, important senators, for a de-escalation in Vietnam in return for not pushing civil rights that hard. It sounds a little cynical, but, but you know, I think Kennedy would, would have said, I would rather make sure I don't go to war in Vietnam if it takes a couple of years longer to get these civil rights bills through. Right. I think it's I think it's an interesting point because I think, you know, as you'd mentioned in the book, shame kind of is the way that LBJ was able to sort of use his knowledge of Southern uh, Democrats. You know, obviously he'd run the Senate for a long time, was intimately sort of knowledgeable about the way that, that it moved uh, and also the way they saw 
uh, JFK, you know, as, as kind of a, a Northern Democrat, right. uh, someone with privilege. So I think it, it is interesting that, again, psychology um, and almost sociology comes into play a little bit here um, in, in the way that LBJ is able to manipulate the Senate. Yeah. What he also did, Johnson, brilliantly was to get the get they made the leaders of the Republican Party on board. He needed their votes in order to get this bill through. And he got them. Uh, whether John Kennedy had that kind of legislative skill is very much an open question. Now, throughout this episode, we've been talking about how JFK survives the assassination attempt in Dallas and what he would do in his final year of his first term and what the world would look like in his second term. But this is all making the assumption that he would, in fact, win his second election, which had certain decisions been made in his final year, a winning 64 campaign would not have been a foregone conclusion. You know, there are a number of things that could have turned the goodwill JFK would have received from surviving the assassination that could have completely derailed his campaign, Mm -hmm. pushing civil rights too hard too early, which would obviously lose the Southern Dixiecrat vote that we spoke of earlier. But I, I personally think there was an even bigger threat to his campaign, and that's scandal. Right. You know, I think it's it's common knowledge today about Kennedy's sort of extramarital affairs while in the White House. And at the time, you know, the 60s and, and earlier, there was kind of this sort of chauvinistic honor among yeah. thieves. You know, the media tended to stay out of sort of politicians' personal lives, unlike today. Right, um, right. But J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, I mean, they didn't, right? right. I mean, he, Hoover uh, was no fan of Kennedy's newsflash. Um and he had an entire dossier about Kennedy's affairs. Right. It was a nuclear option. Well, not literally. But, but yeah, but very much figuratively, you know, to disclose this kind of info on a sitting president. So let's create a scenario that changes everything. He survives the assassination attempt in Dallas. Right. He receives a huge amount of support from the American public. Yes. He tries to leverage that support to move forward on two major, you know, issues. Uh, talks with the Soviets and their allies, right. and putting forward a human rights bill to end Jim Crow once and for all. Obviously, the reaction from conservatives on both issues is extreme. Hawks, you know, lash out at Kennedy's softening on the Cold War, setting a horrible example to our allies and giving the Eastern Bloc the upper hand. And domestically, right, Southern conservatives dig in for a long, arduous fight to maintain their Southern way of life. I might add... That there would be quite a few Northerners as well, right? I mean... Absolutely. So now these factors, I think anyway, would be more than enough motive for his opposition to push Hoover, to push the button on the so-called nuclear option, figuratively. You know, a lot of these guys in one way, shape or form were in cahoots with Hoover. And he wouldn't need that much prodding to uh, release a scandalous photo of, of JFK and Marilyn Monroe, etc., uh, to the press. And at that point, everything is up for grabs. Well, let's let's explore what, what could have happened, because I think, uh, you know, we've put together a little another little news flash for you, Jeff, to uh, to mull over what these What happens on voting topics. night. Yeah. This just in. It's official. Florida will go to Goldwater. And hold on. OK, we can now project that the 36th president of the United States will, in fact, be Barry Morris Goldwater of Arizona. It appears that Kennedy will not win the southern states he needed so badly, nor the state of California. So despite surviving an assassination attempt and mending fragile relations with the Soviet Union, scandals and loss of his former Texas Vice President Johnson, he was not able to tell a compelling story to the American people that he deserved a second term. 
And the new president, President-elect Goldwater, will have some big challenges ahead. Civil rights, communism, and how do we keep the American economy moving forward? Not easy tasks for any man. So, Jeff, we, you have a slightly different POV of this in your book. Yeah, the opposite POV. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah, a, a, a reality where, where JFK wins a second term by a healthy 54. Well, but, but not to be too uh, dismissive, John Kennedy would have faced a lot of trouble being reelected, depending on who the Republicans nominated. His civil rights stand had cost him uh, support in the South. His support had cratered. Mm-hmm. Uh, one poll showed him running 20 points behind a Republican in the southern states. And there was there was racial conflict in the north as well. There were fights over busing for school integration, uh, jobs, open housing, crime, welfare. These these issues were popping up in in city after city. So, you know, I think had the Republicans nominated a moderate. Uh, somebody like a, a, a George Romney, governor of Michigan and Mitt Romney's father. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rockefeller might have had problems because of his uh, divorce and remarriage. Mm-hmm. Possibly a guy like Governor Scranton of Pennsylvania, a moderate. I think Kennedy would have had a real problem. But the one guy that I am absolutely sure he would have beaten was Goldwater. And the reason is the one issue that would have trumped civil rights and racial unrease was war and peace. As I, I mentioned to you, Kennedy had gone out west and found – when he stopped speaking about conservation and natural beauty and started speaking about the nuclear test ban treaty, the crowds went crazy. And Goldwater had had – you know just had very intemperate things to say about nuclear weapons and about you know why we should be taking the offensive. And with the Cuban Missile Crisis still in the memory of most Americans, I think the peace issue – would have given Kennedy a second term against Goldwater. And I cannot, I can't play any alternate history game where that changes. Mm. You mentioned um, in, in your book um, kind of winning over some of those states in the Midwest that maybe he hadn't won the first time around. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Like, wh- why, it, it, is it just the peace issue or is there the economy's booming for him or, or why would he have gotten those? Yeah, well, the economy, right. The economy, we are in the middle of this 30 year American exceptionalism, unbelievable, uh, you know, golden age. There is constant real economic growth. There is no inflation. The budget is balanced. Unemployment is, uh, I think, around four and a half percent. Um, everybody's doing better. It started right after World War II and continued on into the early 1970s with the, uh, with the oil embargo and the emergence of competitors in Europe and Japan. So the economy is doing great. Um, and then when you look from state to state, um, the election in 1960 was, was not only incredibly close in the popular vote, it was one-tenth of one percent, but many of the states that Kennedy uh, won and lost were by uh, very narrow margins. So if you assume that Kennedy won't win anything in the South, uh, maybe not even Texas, if Lyndon Johnson's not on the ticket, what is, where does he make up for that? He makes up for that in California, right? which he had, which he had lost. The 20 electoral votes right there, right? Right. He, ma- he makes up for it in Ohio. He makes up for it in Wisconsin. Um, Still loses Florida, though, you think? You know, whatever you'd like with Florida, but I mean, maybe he has a, maybe maybe he has a shot. Maybe the uh, Cuban 
there weren't enough Cuban voters in 1964 as there were years later to make a difference. But I think he ha- what he means is he has to hold the, the, the big states that he barely won, like Michigan, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And he has to add to that California, Ohio, Wisconsin. Um, and he, you know, with Goldwater, I think he does that. Against a moderate Republican, it gets – I would not even hazard a guess. I think – I think the economy and peace ultimately, and the fact that he's a really good campaigner, yeah, uh, would have would have would have carried him through. But it would have been a much tougher race against anybody but uh, Goldwater. It's, it's interesting because you, you mentioned it's almost like a jolt to the American psyche. I think the, the Cuban Missile Crisis was such a we we went to the brink and everybody felt it because they were talking about evacuating cities, all of the sort of stuff. That's got to have a massive effect on people. Yep. I mean, and I can also see that playing very well for JFK in one term because everyone's like, okay, he brought us back from the brink. He's got a much more rational message. Goldwater comes out and he's, he's a little cray-cray, you know, he's, he's talking about war and things of that nature. Dropping a bomb in the uh, urinal exactly. of the Kremlin or something like exactly. that, right? Exactly, exactly. So, so it is interesting Um but one thing, though, I have a question about, though, is even though all these things are lining up for him, and, and maybe this is a, uh, a moot point because maybe this doesn't happen because uh, times were different back then and not everything was leaked out. But, you know, Hoover did have a lot of stuff on him, right? J. Edgar Hoover, um, the head of the, of the FBI. And if he would have started, uh, you know, dropping those stories out to the press, um, the affairs, Kennedy's health, right, um, all that stuff. Uh, Not that, to mention that, the Addison's disease, things yeah. of that nature that could have come to light. We know that Nixon, obviously, you know, had had tried to break in and steal medical records at one point. Yeah, I mean, are there some more dirty tricks that could have played a role? I mean, does could Hoover have jumped in and turned this whole thing around, or do you think it wouldn't have affected? Here's how I played that. I think. Um, just to leap ahead, I think that Kennedy's private life uh, would have been a real obstacle to him in his second term. Uh, and I play with that a lot in the book, because uh, contrary to the belief, the press was not all cowed or ignorant about this. There was people sniffing around Kennedy uh, just before he went to Dallas about various parts of his private life. The part about Hoover, basically what Hoover had with the Kennedys was a kind of guaranteed job for life because he had the dirt on Kennedy. Um, there's also the speculation about Hoover's private life. Um, in, in my in a book about Bobby running for president, I suggested it's kind of mutually assured destruction. Yeah. That, that the way they keep Hoover from leaking this stuff about Kennedy is to say, look, pal, uh, you, you you take us out. And we 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 talk about the vacations you take with Clyde Tolson, and the you know that fine warm relationship you have, and what's going on there. So, I think I think the danger to Kennedy might have come more plausibly as people saw him moving toward a much more accommodationist foreign policy, and the deep state, if I can use that that much abused term, you know the intelligence folks might have said we got to stop kennedy and the way we're going to do it is to try to smear him with his private life but i agree with you one look this is the nice thing about alternate history you get to do yours with the same freedom that i get to do mine (laughs) could hoover have launched and you know would hoover have wanted goldwater as president to the point where he would have tried to leak stuff about kennedy's private life that's certainly a plausible um scenario what were the biggest threats um to him i you know we've we've talked about you know um 
uh, Hoover, um, the, some of the segregations in the South, but there's also like the hawkish Americans that really, you know, if, if people like General LeMay would have gotten a little bit louder or yeah. um, people would have left his cabinet or, or the Security Council or, or whatever. I mean, could that – who was the biggest threat to his election really? Well, if you're talking about the election, um, I don't think anybody in his cabinet – remember, these guys were all courtiers. They would have served anybody who kept them in in their jobs. You know, it, you know, maybe I could imagine, you know, the most hawkish people. I think he would have, look, I think he would have replaced Dean Rusk in a second term as Secretary of State. I think he would have altered his own cabinet. So, you know, could I see General LeMay uh, leaving and, you know, taking to the airwaves to denounce Kennedy as an appeaser? Possibly, but if, you know, if you remember how LeMay performed when he was George Wallace's vice presidential candidate in 1968, I don't necessarily see that as a major threat. Right. Um, and remember, the, the, if, if people were going after Kennedy on policy, on the fact that he was too weak, again, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis, the nuclear test ban treaty, the, the hunger of Americans for an end to the Cold War – would have been a much more powerful message than appeasement. Yeah. All he has to do is is point to the fact that we're all still here. <laughs> you know, it's true, right? I mean, palpable uh, reality. You're still alive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bobby Kennedy said after the missile crisis, he said, you know, uh, the advantage when he was talking about the Hawks, he said the advantage of their position is if, if they're wrong, nobody's going to be around to find out. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, that brings us to the end of uh, of our interview, uh, Jeff. Thank you so much for, for being a part. Any last words from you, a new book that you're working on? No, um, all through the, uh, the campaign two years ago, people asked me, am I going to write an alternate history about this campaign? I said, no, no, we're living the alternate history. <laughs> I, I've thought that before myself. So on that note, guys, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so very much, much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. All righty. Bye-bye. Once again, thank you for listening to our alternate nonsense. A special thanks to our very sensical, if not downright brilliant, Jeff Greenfield. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments, counter-arguments, theories, and alternate history ideas. Just send us a note at theworldthatwasn't.com. The next episode will be coming out in a month's time, and it sets up a heretical alternate history for most Americans that explores the very real possibility that George Washington fights for the British instead of the 13 colonies in the War of Independence. Now, I don't know what to tell you. It could have happened. We take a jump back to 1754 to the beginnings of the French and Indian Wars, some say the wars that made America. Now, if things had gone a little differently, could a young, ambitious Washington have seen advancement in the British Army and instead taken up arms against the colonial patriots for King George and country? A tantalizing prospect. Please reserve your hate mail uh, towards Nick for this topic <laughs> until after you've heard the episode. Oh, we get George Washington. Um, so yes. Anyway, join us for this next enthralling episode. It's going to be. Uh, it's it's going to be a good one. It's yes. going to be a good one. I should be donning my red coat next episode, along with my stash of tea, which I'll keep securely dry on the side there. And then we'll give you some more hints as time goes on on some of the other episodes we're going to have coming up here, but they're going to be pretty fun. So stay tuned, subscribe, send to your friends, share them, talk to us, criticize us, tell us what you want. We're ready to go. Yeah, criticize Jamie. Yeah, there you go eat into criticism. Just, you know, enjoy it, all right? <laughs> That's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me as well. <laughs>